Part three, chapter one of Rubble and Rose Leaves and Things of That Kind. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Rubble and Rose Leaves by Frank W. Borham. Part three, chapter one. We are seven. Tall, bronzed, and bearded. Bruce Sinclair was a typical New Zealand farmer. He was born in Fifeshire, it is true, but his parents had emigrated when he was so young that he seemed to belong to the land of his adoption. They had come out on the John McIntyre, one of the first ships to bring settlers to these shores. I never saw the old people. By the time I reached New Zealand, Bruce had laid them to rest in the little God's Acre on the crest, and was himself farming on the lands which they had originally settled. The homestead was up among the foothills near Otakia, about nine miles south of Mosgiel, and Bruce usually rode over on Sundays. One felt that something was missing if, on going round to the vestry door, Oscar, Bruce's chestnut pony, was not to be seen in the yard. Bruce was quiet and reserved. He seldom spoke unless he was spoken to, but he gave an impression of depth and stability. In his light blue eyes, eyes that seemed paler than they really were by contrast with his sunburned and weather-beaten countenance. There was a subtle suggestion of secret struggle and secret suffering. You somehow felt that the calm of his sturdy personality was the peace that comes when mighty forces have been vanquished and fierce storms stilled. I had heard it whispered that in the early colonial days, the days of his youth, Bruce had chafed under the restraints of home and had for some years gone his own way but except that I fancied that I saw a look of pain in his face when he first directed my attention to the frame portraits of his parents, as they hung on either side of the fireplace at Otakia. He had given me no hint of anything of the kind. One Sunday morning I missed the chestnut pony. During the week, Mrs. Sinclair called at the manse to tell me that Bruce was ill. But don't trouble to come, she said. He couldn't see you even if you did, and it's a long way to come for nothing. I'll let you know when he's able to see you. True to her word, at length she gave me permission. But as it happened, I was just setting out for a distant part of the colony, a journey of a thousand miles, and it was nearly a month before I was able to turn my face towards the farm at Otakia. But the day to which I had so longed looked forward dawned at last. The dwelling that served Bruce as a homestead was a plain, white box-like little cottage, nestling among the hills about a quarter of a mile back from the road. Seated at the open window, he had seen me enter the big gate at the farm entrance and drive up the track from the road to the door. Bowed and leaning forward upon two sticks, he came to the doorway to greet me, a wan smile lighting up a countenance that seemed strangely pale. I saw at a glance that he had been very ill. But there, I'm better now, he said, cheerfully and shall soon be all right again. Sit down. And he pointed to a lounge chair on the veranda. We sat there chatting for a while, and then Mrs. Sinclair brought out the afternoon tea. As soon as the cups had been removed, I rose as if to go. Oh, don't be in a hurry, he said. Sit down. I want to tell you what a strange experience I've had. I resumed my seat. You see, he went on, I had a birthday, my fiftieth, just as my illness was at its worst. 
I intended having a few very old friends here to celebrate the occasion, but that, of course, was out of the question. The idea had, however, fastened itself so firmly upon my mind that, in my delirium, I thought I was sending out the invitations, he laughed, but I could see that there was a good deal of seriousness behind it. You know how at times such things get mixed up in your brain, he went on. Well, my birthday invitations and the other th thoughts that had come to me in the early stage of my sickness got hopelessly confused. I was in great distress because I could only think of three people who I wanted to invite. I wrote out the invitations to the man I used to be, the man I might have been, and the man I shall be. I remember thinking that these were strange people to ask, and I was surprised that the number was so small. But the odd part is to come, for in the same dream or another, I cannot be sure, I thought that I was welcoming my guest. I had set the table for the four of us, my three visitors and myself, but, to my amazement, twice as many people came as I had invited. I had invited the man I used to be, but two men arrived, each of them claiming to be the personage indicated by that description. Exactly the same thing happened in the case of the man I might have been, and again in the case of the man I shall be. I was at first very bewildered and confused by the arrival of so many guests, but, excusing myself, I added three chairs to the number at the table, making seven in all. Then, when all was ready, I ushered them in and showed them to their places. And there we sat, the seven of us. One, the man I am at the head of the table. Two, the man I used to be, the number one. Three, the man I used to be, number two, facing me. Four, the man I might have been, number one. Five, the man I might have been, number two, on my left. Six, the man I shall be, number one. Seven, the man I shall be number two on my right. Well, the first thing that struck me as I surveyed the six faces about me was that, although they seemed arranged in pairs, no two of the same name bore much resemblance to each other. The couples were contrasts rather than duplicates. Mrs. Sinclair appeared, bringing her husband's medicine. He drank it quickly and continued his story. I can't help laughing as I think of it now, he went on. It seemed so very fantastic and absurd, but it was a grimly serious business at the time, and I was afraid that, considered as a birthday frolic, it was scarcely a success. There I sat at the head of the table, my six selves around me, and each of them I could see something of the features that I regularly behold in the mirror, but in each case the general impression was either disfigured or idealised. Let me describe them two by two. To begin with, there was the man I used to be, the first of that name. He was my guest, and I tried to be civil, but in my heart I could not welcome him. I sat there wondering, you know how such things happen in dreams, by what strange impulse I had invited him to my table. For truth to tell, I have always dreaded his return. Have you read Grant Allen's story, The Reverend John Creedy? I have it inside there. I will ask Mrs. Sinclair to bring it out before you go, and you should take it with you. I read it a few weeks before my illness, and it made a great impression upon me. It is the story of an African boy taken from the hold of slavers on the Gold Coast and carried away to England. He is committed to a Christian home, is most carefully trained and educated, and is denied nothing that can add to his culture and refinement. He goes to Oxford, becomes a Bachelor of Arts, 
is ordained and is designated to return as a missionary to his native land. Before leaving, he marries Miss Ethelberry, a gently nurtured English lady, and amidst the good wishes of a great host of admiring friends, the two sail from Southampton for Central Africa. For a while all goes well. They are very happy and very useful. But amidst the old environment, the old feelings are stirred. His blood leaps to the sound of the tom-toms. The native feasts and dance have a singular fascination for him. He learns to love, once more, the native foods and drinks. It is too much for him. His old self masters his new self. He abandons the work, leaves his wife to die, tears up his English clothes, and goes back to savagery. And today, so Grant Allen concludes the story, today, the old half-caste Portuguese rum dealer at Butterboon can point out to any English pioneer who comes up the river which one, among a crowd of dilapidated negroes who lie basking in the soft dust outside his hut, was once the Reverend John Creedy, B.A., of Magdalen College, Oxford. The story so recently read may have helped to shape my dream. At any rate, I remember sitting at the head of the table looking into the face of the man I used to be. It is bad enough, I thought to myself, when the old life comes rushing resistantly back upon one as it rushed back upon John Creedy, no bolts or bars being strong enough to keep it out. But by what folly had I invited my old self back and seated him at my table? I felt as I gazed into his face as though I had committed the unpardonable sin. And there, sitting beside him, was my namesake. You can imagine no more striking contrast. For the second edition of The Man I Used to Be appeared to be not only a better man than the other, but a better man than the man I am. I never told you much about the past. One does not make a song of such things. But I can tell you that it was a wonderful experience when, nearly thirty years ago, I renounced the old life, entered the kingdom of heaven, and joined a Christian church. As I have said, I would not go back to the old life for anything on earth. And yet looking back, I can see that in those early days, I had a few fine qualities that are not mine today. I love money more now than I did then. I love comfort more now than I did then. In those days, wayward as I was, I would gladly have given the last coin that I possessed to help a chum. I remember once drawing every penny of my balance at the savings bank to get a comrade out of trouble. I would have faced any discomfort, privation, or even death itself in an enterprise in which we fellows were engaged together. I am afraid that I am now too smug to be heroic and too self-centred to be really generous. And strange as it may seem, as I looked across the table at the man I used to be, the, the second one, I felt heartily ashamed of the man I am. I was reading in a book of George Eliot's that there are only two kinds of religious people. The people who are the better for their religion, and the people who are the worse for it. I am not sure I know that on the whole. I am better for my faith. But I know too, that before my conversion, I had some good points that I have since lost. I need not describe my other guests in such detail. If the contrast between the two who answered to the name of the man I used to be was great, the contrast between the two who described themselves as the man I might have been was greater still. I was ashamed to admit the first of them to the house, and I could see that several of my guests felt extremely uncomfortable in his presence. This is the man that I should have been today had the radiant experience of nearly thirty years ago never visited me. I saw as I gazed into the repulsive face of this guest that, 
Had I continued the career in which, until then, I had delighted, the heroic qualities of my waywardness would soon have vanished, and the sorrowed elements of that lawless life would have become dominant and supreme. The chivalry of those days would, in time, have died out of my soul, just as it died out of King Arthur's court, and the shame and the squalor would have become more pronounced in the years. Even sitting on the veranda, Bruce Sinclair shuddered as he recalled this aspect of his dream. The companion picture, the other edition of The Man I Might Have Been, was, he continued, as different as different could be. It seemed ridiculous that they bore the same name. As I looked upon the first of the pair, I felt thankful that I am as I am, but when I turned to the second, that feeling completely forsook me. For I saw, as I gazed into that face, the face on my immediate left, that I should have been if jealousy retaining all the magnanimous and open-hearted qualities in my early days, I had added to them all the graces and excellences which Christian experience and the membership of the church had made possible to me. But I have done neither the one nor the other. I have lost the high-spirited virtues of my youth, and like a man who has been walking around among diamonds, but has been too indolent to pick them up, I have failed to acquire the ripe devoutedness which these year, later years should have brought. It seems strange now, but on the very last Sunday morning on which I came to church, you were preaching on the additions of grace. Add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge. Do you remember? You were saying that the art of life lies in adding virtue to virtue, as a mason adds tear to tear, or as a tree adds ring to ring. I thought a good deal about it afterwards, and it may have woven itself into my dream. At any rate, I looked into the face beside me. I saw the man that I should have been, if only I'd added to the generous sentiments of youth the nobler attainments that Christian experience and service offered me. And it was like turning from a masterpiece to a dab, when I once more contemplated the man I am. The third pair did not present so strong a contrast. They might easily have passed for brothers, one of whom had enjoyed greater advantages, and moved in better society than the other. The first of those who presented himself as the man I shall be, strongly resembled, except that he was older, the man I am. The fact is, I suppose that, of late years, I've been content to take life, at least on its religious side, pretty much as I found it. I've become complacent, easygoing, readily satisfied, willing to follow the drift. There was a time, twenty years ago or more, when I used to submit myself to periodical examinations. I tested myself, tried to ascertain whether or not I was growing in grace, felt anxious as to whether the spirit was gaining upon the flesh, or the flesh upon the spirit. But of late years I have taken things less seriously, and, now that I have time to think about such matters, I can see that I have settled down to a condition that is perilously like stagnation. Going on at the same sluggish rate for a few more years, I cannot expect that I shall at least differ essentially, except at age, from the man I am, and that, I suppose, is why the first of these two seems in some respects to resemble so closely the man that I see each day in the mirror. The second, the guest on my immediate right, was a much finer man. He too was old, but there was a grace and a sweetness and a charm about his age that was quite absent from the person of his companion. Indeed, but as the association suggested by circumstance under which we met, I should never recognise myself in him. 
but he has taught me, and I feel that life has been inestimably enriched by the lesson. That if I set myself to recapture the better qualities that I have lost, and begin diligently to cultivate the graces that I have neglected, I shall yet make something of my life, and stand, not altogether confused and ashamed, before my Lord at last. I'm not sure, my old friend concluded. I'm not sure that all these occurred to me in the course of my dream. Much of it has probably suggested itself in my subsequent reflections. In time of sickness and of convalescence, a man sees life from a new angle. He's able to do a little stock-taking, and I feel that in my case, the operation, perhaps because it was particularly necessary, has been particularly profitable. Mrs. Sinclair came out to ask if he was feeling chilly. The afternoon sun was certainly sinking, and I am afraid that I have allowed my friend to tire himself in telling me his tale. He made an excellent recovery, however, and, in the years that followed, was at church more frequently than ever. And it may have been a fond illusion of my own, but somehow I fancied that, as time went on, he became more and more like that nobler, lovelier, kinder self that he had so graphically described to me. End of Part 3 Chapter 1